0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: So I had this idea.
0: Yeah. Okay,
2: that's dangerous. Um,
1: so you know how we were doing the non-sponsors? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it occurred to me the other day as I was listening to David Plot's Wax Poetic about uh, I, I don't know. Remember, remember Harry's razors yeah. or something. Oh, yeah. That because none of these companies sponsor us, we could have like do actual reviews. Of Harry's uh, Razor? Like, like, you know... I actually
2: use
3: Harry's Razor. Do you actually use Harry's Razor? I do. You like you, you I you like them? Do you recommend I them to a friend? I would
1: recommend
2: them, so them. I might recommend them even more if they paid me.
1: Because I've actually used uh,
2: uh, Stamps.com.
0: Mm-hmm. And we have suck? a Casper mattress.
1: <laughs> so, 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 Whoa. so Stamps.com doesn't suck, but it is quite expensive. Okay. Um, oh, right.
0: So basically you're proposing that the podcast become the Angie's List of Podcast Sponsors?
2: Hello and welcome to Rational Security: The Killer Robots Have Arrived Edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily the Beast. They've not actually arrived in our studio.
0: Thank but, God.
2: But we're all here in our studio. Hi guys. Hi. Hey. Susan, Ben, and Tamara are all here. It is bloody hot outside. It it's was like
3: hot and muggy. Yeah. And it's just DC is yeah. a swamp.
2: It's back. We had this little respite. It was a lovely week, and then things just heated up, literally and figuratively.
0: You know, Washington was built on a swamp. It will always be a swamp. Yeah, it's true. In our hearts. It's good to know some things never change. Some
2: things never change. Exactly. Don't fight the system. Uh, This week on the podcast, big news out of Dallas, of course. Police officers in Dallas use a robot bomb to kill the man who murdered five police officers. We're going to talk about that. Uh, A tribunal rules that China is violating international law over territorial claims. You're happy about that ruling. You're very pleased.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm grinning like the Cheshire cat. Yeah,
2: Ben is smiling big time. And the GOP platform committee eliminates language that supports a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We'll talk about that and other crucial matters that are being decided in the Republican policy platform. Uh, let's get right to it, though, with uh, the news out of Dallas. Of course, this uh, we uh, had the uh, the terrible shooting of five officers there, uh, who were providing very what seemed to be very peaceful uh, protection to a Black Lives Matter protest, protesting to other shootings um, previously of Black men by police officers in Baton Rouge and in Minneapolis. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: so we can talk a little about this, but I think what was really interesting for for our readers and our listeners, sorry, is that when this shooter, Micah Johnson, who was a former Army vet, uh, who apparently had taken recently some shooting training. Uh, uh, was cornered in a parking garage. Police officers who were negotiating with him uh, eventually sent in a a bomb-detecting robot, the kind of sort of, you know, land drone, if we might want to call it, that usually goes in to sort of scout out a scene. Ground robotics. Ground robotics, okay. Um, Apparently armed with some kind of IED. And when negotiations went south, uh, and they, I guess, believed they had some reason to think that he might pose an imminent threat, um, they blew it up and they killed him with an explosive device. So I have a lot of thoughts about this and a lot of questions, but one that I want to throw out to everyone was, um, does the fact that this guy was killed with ground robotics versus, let's say, a police sniper or police officers charging in in sort of classic fashion um, <clears throat> with riot gear and taking him out, does that fundamentally matter? That, that's the, 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 mode, that the, the mode with which he was killed
1: so can I just say that I've been getting a weird number of press calls about this question all week. Been that
2: weird.
3: It's really captured people's imagination. Yeah. you did that. write about killer robots, but, right?
0: But, so it's but, natural they would call you. But
1: here's the thing, you know, I, I've always said this about the Predator drone. One of one of the lines I've always used about Predators and Reapers is if it's uh, lawful and legal and ethical to kill somebody with a gun or bludgeon him to death with a stick. It is lawful, legal, and ethical to uh, you know, take him out with a predator drone. Uh, and I don't see why that's any different if you're the US military or the CIA than it should be if you're the Dallas Police Department in a live-fire situation with an active shooter who's refusing to surrender, laughing at you, singing, and threatening to kill more cops. And this is a situation in which seven people had already been shot, um, or, or sorry, 12, twelve people. Twelve people, 12 people had already been five five of them killed. Seven two two of them civilians. So there's an act and ten of them cops. So there's an active danger that justifies a self-defense, uh, you know, rationale for the killing, and there's a civilian protection rationale for the killing. And it seems to me weird to make a fetish or Develop anxieties about doing it by one means that does not cause any collateral consequences to civilians or anyone else versus another means that doesn't. And so my, my question is, what's the big deal here? Uh, it seems like a creative response to a difficult problem. I'm just not fussed about it. So
3: this is my, it seems like a lot of people have sort of been focused on the robot angle. Mm-hmm. Um, I was more sort of struck by the explosives angle. Um, so I, I broadly agree with Ben, right, that um, there's sort of there's an overemphasis on, on the methods in a way that doesn't really bear on the legality. And I think this might be a circumstance in which it was a completely justified use. The reason why I think sort of um, the robot and the explosives are um, sort of present the issue in in a particularly strange way is because it's hard. It raises the question of why they couldn't have used non-lethal force, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's in a live fire situation. You know, you have to make tactical decisions and it's easy to second guess after the fact. But like the notion that, hey, if you can get a robot in there armed with a bomb to blow someone up, can't you do it with tear gas? Can't you knock them out with ether? Can't you, right it seems like um it's it's a situation in which there is sufficient control that like other options it, you think like other options must
0: have been available? That's a really interesting point the, about sufficient control and I think it relates to our broader view as a society about technology that technology gives you more control. And so obviously if you're using something that's technologically sophisticated you must have control. Like, wow, they got this robot in there. Um, And that's a little bit of an illusion, I think, but it's an assumption that we make about technology. I think there are actually a couple other reasons why people find this troubling. One is that our broader public conversation about drones and so on is about the use of technology and killer robots in warfare. And this was a police department in an American city, so it gets to the broader conversation about the militarization of American police Even though bomb-sniffing robots are things that police departments have been using for a long time, it just wakes up that whole debate. But the other thing is that even without disagreeing with anything that you said, Ben, about if it's a justifiable use of force, then the means is not significant, I think that there is something about when the means is appealing for, for its own reasons because it reduces risk to... Uh, Combatants on your side, you know, in this case to police officers, or because it's easy to do, relatively speaking, compared to a sniper, which is hard and requires a lot of training and they have to be in the right place, then does that make it more likely that force will be used in such situations in the future? I think that is one question people have asked about drones, which is a justifiable question. And I think it's a question people are asking here. If police departments have to rely on their own officers to do this work, maybe they are more reluctant to use force and if they can rely on a killer robot, they might be less reluctant but,
1: but to But here's the thing is, I don't want them to be reluctant to use force in this situation. This is a guy who'd already shot 12 people. I'm not I...
0: arguing with the premise that it was a justifiable use no, of no, force. No, no, no. I'm saying, in general, does it lower the bar for uses of right.
1: force? But, but 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 that's exactly my point. This is an area where I want it to lower the bar, right? I want it to be as easy as possible to take out an active shooter who's killing people. And it doesn't, to me, it's not even related to the question of police shootings in, say, other contexts where we may have a much less gratifying feeling about them. You know, we're not talking, we're not talking here about, about a motorist, right? Um, or, you know, a, a traffic stop or an arrest situation. We're talking about somebody who there is simply no question poses an absolutely dramatic, imminent threat to people in the vicinity, civilian and cop alike.
0: It might not be that transferable to other active shooter situations. If you think about active shooters, you know, in a school environment or a movie theater or a college campus, there are a lot of civilians around. The, The thing that was... I wouldn't say unique, but striking about the situation is that he was isolated. Right. They didn't know if he was booby-trapped. They didn't know if he had booby-trapped other things. That's but cute. there weren't yeah. civilians around him. And it's that combination that he himself could pose a significant threat if they tried to go in personally, and that there was nobody else around who would get hurt but, but, if they but, did this. But, but
1: here's the thing. In that school shooting situation, um, the relevant question seems to me to be, would you want them to have the tool? And you I know, wouldn't
0: want them to send a killer robot into a college
3: classroom full of civilians I with think as an active a sort of, shooter. No, look, well, I and think and they, and they the, wouldn't
2: because they'd probably shoot the civilians when they saw the robot. Right.
3: Yeah, but look, I don't. I think this is an area in which sort of that broad objection about well, um, the use of drones uh, lowers the threshold because you don't have to put your soldiers at stake. I, I think it's totally inept in. Um, like the domestic policing context. No, I do not think that police officers should have to risk their lives in order to neutralize a threat. I don't think that that's, um, to the extent that operates as a functional constraint on the police, it's a negative one that where we can eliminate it, we should. Um, I think that this is probably, like, if not unique, it's it's really specific to the facts, and we wouldn't expect it to sort of... um, I don't think we we should expect to see bomb robots all the time So you don't think
0: other urban police departments are saying, I want me one of them killer robots.
3: I think the question becomes whether or not, uh, so if if lethal force is justified, and it either is or it isn't, um, I I agree sort of as a legal matter that that, um, you know, the question is resolved. I do think it raises the question about, um, especially in the context of uh, very tense relations between police officers and communities. Um, what are the uh, processes we want uh, police officers to think about in those circumstances mm-hmm. whenever they um, sort of establish whether or not there are alternatives? What tools do we want to arm them with? Look, if bomb robots are going to be a thing, I think there should be bomb robots. I don't think that there should be other robots that you stick a thing of dynamite in and send it, right? Like... I think we do have to think about, um, you know, in, in the military context, there are these um, boxes that you have to check, um, and it's, it's hard to, um, it, I think it's, it's more difficult to sort of understand exactly how police officers make that determination. So I don't think they made the wrong call, but it is interesting that there hasn't been more sort of examination on, you're a cop in an active situation, as a legal matter, what what boxes have you been trained to think about? I mean, I
1: think the right way to think about this is to say, what if they weren't cops? What if they were civilians who, who somebody was shooting at, and one of them happened to be a robotics engineer and the other happened to have some c four. Um, I would
3: watch that movie. <laughs> well, so I would. I would
1: totally watch that movie too. Buddy comedy. But 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 I also think in that situation it <clears throat> would be totally legal self defense and civilian defense for those people to kill the shooter. Yeah. And if that's if that's the case for a civilian, and they it would be perfectly okay, and we might even make a movie about it and or call it cool. Or at least a
0: MacGyver episode, right? right. I think it's that, very MacGyver. That very would
1: be, MacGyver. if that would be totally okay for a civilian to do, it's also totally okay for cops to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Look, again, I, I don't think anyone here is arguing that it wasn't a justified use of force. But the question is why is this gripping the public imagination or at least the media's <laughs> imagination? And does it set any precedents that we might find concerning or at least worth discussing? But I d- personally, I think it would be an awesome guy. I just want to
1: say, say I, it makes me look at our Roomba in a whole new way.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> People could. can put cats on Roombas. What else can they put on Roombas? In
2: our house, in our house the cat just keeps an eye on the Roomba. <laughs> Have I ever told you what we call our Roomba? No. Drone Crawford. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no
3: wire hangers. Yeah.
2: Nothing is clean. <laughs> she gets it clean now. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on. Um, uh, Morning's this week. A tribunal has ruled that China is violating international law <gasps> over its Who claim it over a bunch of rocks in the South China. They're totally islands, right? They're totally islands. Well, if tri- you
0: believe the Paul Simon lyrics, "A rock and an island," equivalent. "I am a
2: rock, I am an island," did that's, they use that in their the, defense? That's what China says. Yeah.
0: I am a rock. I am an island. It's,
1: I, think yeah, maybe, I am a
2: rock. I am an island. Edition. I think maybe we, back I
1: think we, we maybe just changed the name of the,
2: <laughs> of the show. <laughs> Uh, ben, you have thoughts on this. Share them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was a segue. <laughs> you know,
1: so first of all, the case is a very big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Um, and the reason it's a big deal is that China has been, over the last decade or so, trying very hard to establish a... Uh, Zone of effective uh, sovereignty, sphere of influence in in the East Asian seas, um, and has been incredibly aggressive about it in a fashion that is somewhat reminiscent, I think, of sort of nineteenth century America. You know, asserting that Europe's got to kind of stay out of the Western Hemisphere. You know, it, it's it's really sort of that kind of thing. And they've made a series of international law claims, particularly with respect to the the South China Sea, that have uh, infuriated not most but all of the other uh, countries that abut those seas, the East China Sea and the South China Sea. they, uh, in, and the Philippines has, uh, really challenged this. And there have been a series of confrontations both with Vietnam and with the Philippines over these rocks, which China calls islands. And, um. But which
0: they've, like, dredged up land and added soil to right? Correct.
1: There has the, ma- been a major land reclamation or clamation effort because it's not being reclaimed, <laughs> <laughs> um, with respect to those. And, um and it has been environmentally kind of catastrophic for the, for the region and if you look at a map of the territorial claims that China has made and i've actually seen chinese military scholar, um officers and i uh, make you know presentations on their claims and they are uh the word i want to use is ferocious about it uh they talk about it the way they talk about tibet or you know, Taiwan or, you know, it's with this sort of table-pounding, very scary nationalism. And um, if you look at the map that they've advanced, which is the map of what's called the Nine-Dash Line, it basically surrounds the entire sea and goes right up to the physical lands of all of their neighboring countries. Uh, and this has had a major, major impact on the politics of the region, which has driven a whole lot of those countries, particularly the Philippines and Vietnam, uh, into the hands of the U.S. Navy. Um, it has f- become a flashpoint for uh, potential war. Uh, and so the Philippines did what any right-thinking uh, country would do, which is they sued. And they sued under the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. And this,
0: uh. Which we still haven't ratified, is that right? Correct. But to which China is a party.
1: <laughs> to which China is a party. China refuses the jurisdiction of the tribunal. So they didn't really show up to defend themselves. And the Philippines won on essentially every point that was contested. It is a very significant, uh, uh arbitration ruling. And it will have big implications for what China can claim legally. The interesting question is whether it has any implications for what China will do um, or whether it will simply cast a sort of negative international law gloss on the stuff that China is doing anyway. But it will certainly give all of uh all of the uh other uh, countries with with a claim on s- sovereign waters in those seas and exclusive economic zones in those seas a much better international law leg to stand on than they have had up to this point.
3: So I think there are two like interesting notes. So um, note one, uh, starting sort of like two weeks ago, early last week, um, the Chinese really started coming out with these very, very strong statements about the invalidity of this and, I mean, really kind of going all in on on the the, the entire process, the entire process, the tribunal. It was so invalid. Um, it all, yeah. Almost as if they knew what was coming. Yeah, you might think um, they had,
1: like, some signals intelligence right, or something. Right, you might
3: think that maybe they'd, like, 100% penetrated every single part of the Hague and, like, <laughs> obviously knew what was happening at every single step of the way because they were responding to it in their state media. Um, so that's, I think, just something that's sort of a... Um, an interesting note uh, about sort of how uh, how they shaped the response. Right, clearly they, um, through one way or another, had some sense of what was coming. And
0: um, those judges in the Hague are not skeptical enough about phishing email, apparently.
3: Apparently not. My goodness. I um, so, thought it was
2: literally about phishing. <laughs> right.
3: Exactly. They're like, right. oh, this is. Yeah. Well, this
2: seems trite. Right.
3: <laughs> um, so th- you know, that's just I think more of a like observation. The, the sort of I think the broader question um is china is not going to comply with this right so i think the most sort of um fundamental holding is essentially that uh the Yun clause applies and not and and it supersedes any historic claims so it's not going to determine whether or not this nine dash line is valid and there's all kinds of reasons why it probably isn't but like they they agreed to this treaty and and that's what was going to govern china is now not going to comply and so i think the question becomes what does the rest of the world do when China just says, well, we don't recognize that, the United States has sort of tepidly like, well, they aren't commenting on the merits of the holding, but they're noting that it's binding on the parties. So I think sort of the, the question now becomes, when China takes its first concrete action in violation of this holding, what do we all
0: do about mm-hmm. it? Right. Well, but this, this gets to the broader point of does international law matter, right? Right. And this is a situation where, as Ben was pointing out um, earlier, you have geopolitics and uh, regional competition, power competition, um, and a relative regional powerhouse that is getting other states to balance against it. Right? The, those other states are bandwagoning together, joining with the United States to balance against China's power. And they're trying to use international law as an instrument to constrain China's power. But China's not going to be bound by that and you know show me an example in where a, a multilateral covenant has ever really constrained a major power from something that it wanted to do in its own interest. So I think it's more useful to look at the the law of the sea convention here as a tool in
3: a geopolitical competition,
0: than to see it as something with any force of its own.
3: So one point that Julian Ku made on uh, in sort of the Lawfare article in his brief response was the question of whether or not um, the Philippines had won by too much um, because it was such a sweeping victory. It was sort of,
0: incredible. Well,
3: no, <laughs> that there wasn't um, any room to negotiate, yeah. right? Oh no, that face if saving. If it had been kind of this middle thing, then that then there could be some face saving. We could sort of there could be some movement and kind of some negotiation because it was such a like you know total victory it's sort of put it's really hardened the positions because now either you accept the 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 ruling or you don't and actually it it might have made things worse oh but we can
0: be more diplomatically creative than that i mean i don't know what the provisions what the arbitration provisions of UNCLOS are exactly but i'm sure that creative diplomats if they wanted to as, you know, come up with a face-saving way out. Could establish and say, well, this ruling now becomes the basis for a negotiation, and so the Philippines can feel that their um, that the power imbalance is is compensated in part by the ruling, and then they have a negotiation, and the Chinese have facts on the ground, and the Philippines have a ruling.
1: So I think I, I think the the ruling has more objective significance than. Um than that. You're
0: gonna argue international law matters. Well, then. I'm so surprised. Uh, so um I mean, we should
1: ratify UNCLOS. Uh, <laughs> well I, I actually do think we should ratify UNCLOS. But so I think the significance is the following, at a minimum. There may be there may be other significances. But the US has been running freedom of navigation exercises through the South China Sea. Um those are extremely tense and extremely controversial. And China's position toward those is that they're a breach of Chinese sovereignty. Um the U.S.'s position is that those are international waters. Now, that position has a major arbitration finding by an international body behind it. And so I do think it becomes easier to engage in exercises like that as, you know, with 130 countries um, and the... The, the, the I think it becomes easier for a lot of other countries including the United States with a powerful navy to conduct open operations in those waters than it was uh, before and I you know that's partly the uh, PR qualities of international law, but I do think in a situation like this it does matter
3: well it is interesting sort of seeing um How the law is shaping the the efforts to establish the facts on the ground, right? So, so China is building up these rocks, uh, you know, to have economic activity and tourist activity and all sorts of, in order to satisfy the claims under the sort of, under international law. The United States is conducting ops in order to say, we're allowed to to sail through these waters and we're going to show you that we're allowed to sail through these waters by sailing through these waters and we're going to do it at, at intervals. And, um, how much sort of uh, care there is to um, to never let the other side establish sort of negative or unopposed uh, facts. I, I just think it's sort of it's an interesting um, there's an interesting interplay with uh, at the with both rejecting the notion of international laws having any kind of effect and also frantically ensuring that you aren't on the negative end of it
2: um all right the republican party is meeting in cleveland ohio cleveland rocks speaking of rocks
0: it like does rock yeah. and the rock and roll hall of fame kind of rocks. The rocks
2: there. there's a lot of rocks in cleveland not a um, fan of cleveland <laughs> I'm not yeah. really either i like
1: cleveland.
3: you're not a fan of
2: anything you're not a fan of platforms either right?
1: he
3: here. likes bomb robots
2: he likes bomb robots I'm pro bomb robots pro bomb roboting um, so As you no, know,
1: we are not suggesting bomb robots at the Republican Convention. <laughs> no one is <laughs> suggesting
2: that. It's going to be interesting enough. Um, but the GOP committee, uh, platform committee is meeting now, ahead of the beginning of the convention on Monday, uh, to write the platform. And they have eliminated language this year that supports a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, they've also asserted that there should be I think the word was an indivisible Jewish state with Jerusalem as its capital and the U.S. Embassy should locate in Jerusalem. And a
1: Palestinian majority. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> just throwing that in there Benji.
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> if you believe in an indivisible Jewish state Between the, the sea well, and, no, no. and, and, no, no. and the Jordan River
0: Well, platform They buts. do not cite a goal of an, of a Jewish state from the river to the sea They do they not just They just took out Eliminate the, sea, yeah. the two states
2: Right, and like, we should yeah. say today We're not necessarily, in the previous platform, calling on them to establish one But saying it is our hope that um, this right. will be Um so, all right, so tomorrow, I mean, how significant is this? I mean, we're gonna, Ben's going to talk about platform committees and all that, but, I mean, it seems to me, just as I mean observing this, if we're looking at the politics of the moment, I mean, personally, I did not meet that many people in my last trip to Israel who think there will be a two-state solution. So, I mean, is the Republican Party just reflecting sort of the reality, or does this signal some kind of you know conservative shift within the GOP and a signaling to uh, hardliners in Israel?
0: So, first of all, I think it's worth noting that the vote in the platform drafting committee on this language was overwhelming to take it out. It was like 14 to 2, I think, um, which is notable. Um, But I think that there's actually, that this is a reflection of some broader arguments that have been going on within the Republican Party for a while, um, and some arguments that have been going on uh, about what it means to be pro-Israel, that... Uh, that you see manifested in this Republican decision, but you also see coming up in other ways um, that aren't strictly limited to the Republican Party. And what's interesting here is that, let's remember, the two-state solution uh, is a policy goal articulated by the United States, by the Palestinian leadership, by the Israeli leadership, uh, by the other members of the quartet, that is Russia and the EU and the UN. And so it seems like the only thing actually right now that everybody involved in one form or another in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict can agree on. So why on earth would the Republican Party platform eliminate support for this policy goal, which has been advanced by both Democratic and Republican administrations? So the argument here... Uh, on behalf of taking the language out was articulated in a very interesting piece by Elliot Abrams in The National Interest and he basically says look um, the US hasn't always supported a two-state solution it, this is something embraced by the way when Elliot was in the George W. Bush administration um, in a certain set of circumstances but right now as you know as you noted Israelis don't think it's realistic Palestinians aren't willing to come to the table. So, who is the United States to dictate in advance a goal? That's okay. So, that's the sort of scholarly argumentation. But what's really going on here is that within the Republican Party, there is a block that's emerged, which is to the right of APAC. It's rooted in evangelicals who are a crucial base for the party, and they actually believe that. Uh, that the Jews should maintain sovereignty over Judea and Samaria, these biblical lands of Israel. And they also believe that not only should the United States not dictate anything to the Israeli government, but that those members of the Israeli government coalition um, who are less interested in a two-state solution uh, should have the full-throated support of, of Americans in upholding that view and this um separates them from apac who take the view that they will support whatever the official policy decision of the israeli government is and the israeli government's committed to two state solution so there's an argument here within the republican party about how to be pro israel what qualifies as pro israel and it's part of a a broader diversification i guess of what it means to be pro-Israel in the United States. You have J Street on the left, you have the Evangelicals on the right, and you have AIPAC in the middle, which just actually lost this vote in yeah. the
3: drafting committee. Yeah. So do you it's think that the fact that the, the strength of the vote in any way was reactionary or signaling to uh, to the Jewish community uh, in response to some of the claims of anti-Semitism or anti-Semitism among Trump supporters? I mean, do you think that, there, that it there's a sense of wanting to be sort of more strongly or extremely pro-Israel. So it's like in terms of what effect the platform might actually have.
0: Oh, that's an interesting question. So I doubt that the platform debate was intended to like make Jews feel better in light of anti-Semitic statements by by Trump people um, and tweets by Trump himself. I think it's more, but I do think that there is an effort and there has been for a while by a number of people who define themselves as pro Israel Republicans to pull American Jews into the Republican Party and make the argument that the Democratic Party is not sufficiently supportive of Israel and only the Republican Party is a true friend of Israel because it is less criti- critical, because it doesn't put pressure on the Israeli government. And this is compounded by the fact that we've had the same Israeli Prime Minister now for almost 10 years, with, the, you know, who's to the right of center. So it kind of reinforces that that argument in the Republican Party that Jews should, pro-Israel Jews should come home to the Republican Party. But, you know, if you look Good at... Good luck with that. Yeah, if you look at public opinion in the American Jewish community, uh, the support for the two-state solution is very, very strong. And so that's not a position that reflects, I think, the mainstream of American Jewish opinion.
2: I, I even wondered as I was as I was, as I was reading about this, will Israelis even care? I mean, if and I, I agree with your assessment tomorrow that it's it's a way of you know, w- within the Republican Party of sort of the you know, what it means to support Israel. But I just wonder if the Israelis will look at that and say, like, yeah, okay, whatever, that's well they, nice.
1: So Israelis will care. Because Israelis care uh, almost pathologically about anything in the United States that relates to Israel, and you know, Israel is one of so the, they're
2: reading this platform committee more closely than Republicans.
1: Uh, in this I, I'm sure it has been covered better in the Israeli press than in the U.S. press. Hey, uh,
0: all politics is local, right?
1: And you it know, it has you,
2: been extensively covered in the Israeli. Press.
1: You say something about Israel in the United States, and and it will they notice. Um, They're also trying
3: to ban pornography, so we've got bigger fish to fry. The Republicans, that is, not the Israelis. No, the Republicans. It's Um, it's a public health crisis. It's a public health health crisis. crisis. Now, one (laughs) thing
1: I can guarantee you, however,
3: however, that's going to win so many things. I could say right
2: now, Uh,
1: one thing I can guarantee you is that U.S. policy toward uh, the peace process and toward the two-state solution much less the disposition of Israeli-Palestinian negotiations will not be decided in Cleveland, and they will not be decided by the Republican drafting committee of the, of, of the party convention. And so I think, like, the reasonable person is entitled to ask, uh, you know, what the heck does this matter? And I can tell you both Israelis and Palestinians what they're going to do with the Republican convention, uh, the Republican drafting uh, uh, the, the, the party platform, which is that they're going to take it into the bathroom and they're going to wipe their asses with it Ooh. because because party platforms are toilet paper. And that is why... Does that
0: include I, the pornography provision? No.
1: Absolutely. That, uh, <laughs> that, that's the part where you turn a camera on yourself before you do it. But, but that's why I've started the hashtag... Hashtag good thing party platforms are toilet paper. And I've been... um been tweeting it
3: hasn't quite caught on. It
1: hasn't <laughs> quite caught on yet. I'm asking for everybody's help. It's just missing
0: when, that je ne sais quoi. <laughs>
1: whenever you so, see,
2: I'm just googling it <laughs> now. I probably mistyped it.
1: Whenever you see a stupid story about something going into the pla- a platform of either party that is, um, uh, you know, that that re- reflects that you think is probably unlikely to become anyone's policy, like banning pornography, um, just. Retweet it with the hashtag, good thing party platforms are toilet paper. You might want
3: to you work on the brevity of that right, hashtag right. there, Ben. I'm sorry. No, I support quality. the spirit. <laughs> Look, but in general, so you think honestly that the party platforms, um, you're arguing that they have no connection to the actual policy of, what, the, party the, election?
1: In, of the party in question, the direction of the country, i you know i okay, there's
0: a lot of empirical support for that claim and I'm, so i'm not even gonna argue it but what i will say is that platforms have symbolic significance they are a signaling mechanism between the party and its constituent groups and therefore they do have real meaning in the political process not perhaps in the policy process i,
1: I guess i mean bernie sanders has won a great victory by getting a whole bunch of lefty planks in the party platform and Hillary Clinton, if she gets elected president, is going to, uh, uh, do exactly what she thinks she should do and can get away with politically without a single reference ever to that document. Right. And she and
2: pushed him, she, he didn't need the platform to push her to the left. The campaign did. Exactly. I mean, and the so platform, the platform provisions are like, you know, when you win the washer and dryer on the game show and not the car.
1: And so here's the, <laughs> here's the question. If the Democratic Party said we're going to have a five-day-long infomercial and we want the the networks to cover, you know, to interrupt normal programming to, to do our infomercial for five days, and the Republicans can do it too, the networks would laugh at them. And if they told the New York Times and the Washington Post, and we're going to publish a series of press releases about what some group of Democrats believes. Um, uh, the, and you should cover each one of them and whether this press release gets released or not or whether it gets amended. The New York Times or the Washington Post would laugh at them. But if you call the first, first, the infomercial, a party convention, a nominating convention, and you call the second one the platform, then everybody goes, ooh, oh, and yeah. it's exactly,
0: so and it's exactly
1: as significant, and the press should know better than to take this seriously. And so I say good thing party platforms are toilet paper. (laughs) What
3: about in the context of right now where both parties are struggling so mightily to even, um, sort of define what does it mean to be a Republican? What does it mean to be a Democrat? Right? There's sort of these baseline questions of, you know who fits in what uh, in what party? How big is the tent? What are the core principles? You don't think that maybe um, of all elections, this might actually be a place in which parties conventions asserting kind of some core principles. The day difference?
1: the day you get the majority party to sign a document saying we will implement the provisions of this document. By the way, that's what the Republicans did in 94 with the contract with America. That was a highly significant document. It set up a program and said, here are 10 things that we are going to do. And the House of Representatives, which was the only one that actually endeavored to do them, um, that seems to me to be a significant document. But a general statement of principles, of conservative principles, by a party who's nominating somebody who, whatever the heck he may be, certainly isn't a conservative, Um and whose own view of the israeli palestinian conflict is so incoherent that he goes from criticizing democrats for not being close enough to israel to promising to be a more honest broker toward the palestinians so for the for the republicans to write in to their platform that they you know or to take out support for the two state solution i don't even know like i i can't imagine why anybody would in the press would spend time focusing on that
0: all right, I'll, I'll just make one final point coming back to the sort of policy dimension of this. Um, if we assume that this matters at all as a statement of policy, um, which is a, a debate over uh, whether to keep the two-state solution in the platform or take it out as a way of debating how to be pro-Israel, sets aside entirely the question of what is in the national interests of the United States. And American foreign policy is determined by what's in our interest so you know somewhere in there there ought to be a policy debate about is it in the american national interest to have the continuation of a century old conflict in the middle east Mm, maybe not (laughs) what you know how would this be resolved in the most lasting and stable way that's the sort of discussion we see none of in a policy in a in a party platform debate and you know i i think that goes just emphasizes that this really is political it's not about policy at all
2: okay let's go on to object lessons um who'd like to go first may i sure
0: okay so my object lesson is an email that i got yesterday uh from a guy named matthew fulton uh i i don't know mr matthew fulton he emailed me um a very sweet note though that i want to share with all of you and he said dr wittes I just wanted to take a second to reach out and say that I'm a big fan of your work. Now, listen to the, to the follow-up. I've spent the last few years writing a spy novel that deals heavily with Middle Eastern politics and the Iranian nuclear program. Mm-hmm. Your commentary on those issues has been especially helpful to my research. So thank you, Best Matt. Well, Matt, first off, thank you for writing. It is so awesome to get feedback. Um, secondly, of course, I bought the book. Oh, it's published. It is published, published, and you too can buy it if you go to mattfulton.net. Oh wow! Um, and get some information about it.
1: And we should also, uh, anybody who reads the book and wants to tweet at us, which character is modeled on Tomorrow Wittes. Oh, I love that. <laughs> we, we, this is a parlor game that, that rational security readers need to. Oh, it's the listeners. first in a
0: trilogy. Isn't that awesome? active so
2: measures, part one. I novel. just think
0: it's so cool that what we're doing Very in this cool. podcast is not merely you know engaging in a conversation with the policy community, but informing. The development of spy novels, and you know, Matt, and aspiring uh, David Ignatius, or uh, we wish you luck. That's and, great, and uh, really glad to know that we've been able to help you in your in your fictional endeavors. Nice, way to go, Matt.
2: Um, okay, I guess I'll go next. Um, <clears throat> I have a uh, this is a poll. It's actually a chart from a poll by ABC News and Washington Post that I think just captures the entire Clinton email dilemma and one tidy little chart. Uh, 56% of respondents found that they did... 56% 56 of respondents disapproved of the FBI's decision not to charge Hillary Clinton over her email. 57%, so another majority, said it does make them worried about what she'd do if elected president. And 58%, the outcome of this issue did not at all change the likelihood of supporting for Clinton. And I think that just captures it. It's just like... Don't like what the FBI did. Don't trust her. Doesn't matter. Already made up my mind. Probably voting for her anyway, <laughs> or not.
0: Well, we don't know if they're voting for her anyway, but or we not. do know they've already made up their mind about yeah, her.
2: Yeah, exactly. And this is this just like doesn't move the needle one way or another, which is again, I'm going to reiterate my thesis makes it. Absolutely perfect thing for the Republicans to sink their teeth into and just savage for the next four
3: years.
2: <laughs> hey, I guarantee that they're going to go on to it it doesn't make a damn bit of political difference. They've been
3: working to prove Shane's theory right. They
2: sure are. They sure true. are. I think they've been listening to the podcast. I'm not trying to <laughs> be hard on you, Republicans. Ideas, I'm just then. saying the first step in curing a problem is admitting that you have one.
1: <laughs> ben, what's your object? I have two objects. Uh, the first is that tonight there is another Behoover book soiree, and this week, uh, this month, we are interviewing, I am interviewing, uh, Steve Budiansky, former Atlantic writer, writer of many great, uh, military and, uh, history books, and, uh, sometimes scientific history books, in this case, both The book is Code Warriors, NSA's Code Breakers, and the Secret Intelligence War Against the Soviet Union. I'm a big fan of Steve Budiansky in general, who wrote a truly fabulous naval history of the War of 1812. Um, But this book is remarkable. It is a remarkably detailed uh, history of the early um, uh, intelligence effort, uh, signals intelligence effort against the Soviets. Uh, it is meticulously researched, uh, and, uh, very sophisticated, both mathematically. Some of the math is a little beyond me, actually. And, uh, and historically. So it's a great read and very worth people's time. Another object which landed with a thunk on my desk today is the first, uh, bill that has been introduced to deal with sextortion since, uh, oh. publication of, uh, the reports that uh, we issued a few, couple months ago, a month and a half ago now, uh, this bill comes from Representative Catherine Clark of uh, Massachusetts. Uh, I have not read it carefully yet, but it seems like a pretty serious uh, piece of work and effort. So uh, I want to give a hat tip to Representative Clark and her staff, uh, and I will be posting comments on the, uh, uh, her sextortion bill as soon as I've had a chance Does to you digest reference your it. work in the bill? I, I, don't believe. In the whereases? Uh, yeah. There are no is okay. um, but, uh, so, so no.
3: Well, I still so think so you so. can clearly. Getting results, as
1: Ben, or yeah. at least part of an early... Uh, an early yeah, good good, good thing Congress is passing so many laws these days. Oh, totally. no, don't fault them for trying.
3: I believe they're reading scholarship and, yeah, it's, and writing. Yeah, because they like, yeah, No, no, I'm... I, Faith restored. Great.
1: she great. She, she has done real work in this space, so I'm, I'm impressed and impressed at the speed with which she uh, has responded.
2: Would she want to sponsor our (laughs) podcast?
1: Yeah, so she uses Harry's Razors and Stamps.com, and and I'm certain she sleeps on a Casper mattress.
2: My goodness. All right, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions, and you can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Uh, Please remember to rate and review the podcast whenever you download it from iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere else. Thank you to those of you who have done it. Uh, It really does uh, make a big difference.
0: I love
3: reading our reviews.
2: I do, too. In fact, I think next week I'm actually going to read some of them. So as an incentive, hey, post a review, and we'll read your name on the air.
3: I'm going to make Tammy a T-shirt that says... Female, very loud.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, actually, I have a great idea
1: for you guys uh, in the reviews department. Uh, Which uh, is
3: a quote. A
1: couple of years ago, uh, Jonathan Rausch, I believe, brought my attention to uh, a a product on Amazon.com called the Three Wolf Moon Shirt. Yeah. uh, mm, for some reason,
0: it has been an object
2: lesson for uh, you.
1: And I think that people should start uh, just making up wild stories about the effects that rational <laughs> security has had <laughs> on their lives. And this
0: is the way to do it, because Shane's going to read your exactly. reviews on so, the air. <laughs> so who can
1: write the review uh, that will um, send us into the viral Three Wolf Moon shirt uh,
2: space? Do it. That's something
0: it. to aspire
2: to. It sure is, surely. Uh, the podcast is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed by Xi Jinping and the Island Rockers.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice. That's
3: yeah. good, right? Very
2: nice. Navigated that one quite How so. about yeah. Xi Jinping and the Scarborough Shoals? The Scarborough Shoals. That's what it's called, isn't it? Yeah. The Reef. Yeah.
3: It's
2: like a Simon Paul's. and Garfunkel. Yeah. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> it's our go-
3: second Paul like Simon reference long
2: to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to Scarborough Shoal? <laughs> <Scholl>? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, of course, our music is performed as always by yeah. Sophia Yan, who is in Hong Kong, so she's right there in the middle of it. Yeah. I hope she is not asserting any violations of international law and territorial
1: waters. She
0: claims an exclusive economic zone.
2: Well, as she, she should.
1: As she should.
0: Well, well. By
1: the way, I've been I've been using uh, people should listen to the ends of the Lawfare podcasts. for You Think We Make Fun of Sophia here. I've been really making fun of Sophia on the Lawfare podcast.
2: Oh, yeah, it's probably been fun. It's, it's, fun. it's love, fun. it's love. It is love. She's like our muse. She is our muse. Our music. That was bad. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> on behalf of my friends, Susan Hessey, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.